0: Welcome to Integrative Oncology Talk, where we discuss the latest science and opinions from leading voices in integrative oncology. Integrative oncology utilizes complementary therapies and lifestyle strategies to help those affected by
1: cancer, using personalized approaches and evidence-based recommendations. Dr. Santosh Rao, a medical oncologist and integrative oncologist, hosts this podcast with support
0: from the Society for Integrative Oncology an international, multidisciplinary organization whose mission is to advance the science and education of integrative oncology worldwide. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect views of the participant's
1: workplace or SIO, and are not meant to offer medical advice. The information, opinions, and recommendations in the podcast are for general information only. Before making any changes in your healthcare or lifestyle, please discuss with your healthcare provider.
0: We continue our discussion with Dr. Tarona Lodog, leader in integrative medicine, author, and educator, focusing on integrative approaches during the cancer journey. In this second episode, we continue our discussion of symptom management and women's health, and Dr. Lodog discusses what she learned through her own cancer journey. Tarona, I, I want to get to some of the other questions I have, and there's just a million things that I could ask you, but I want, I want you to talk about sleep. <laughs> And how, um, what are some of the things people can use to help them sleep? So sleep is core. It's just core. Well, um,
1: you know, I've been a lot better about looking for, you know, in all patients, asking a lot more about, you know, are you getting restorative sleep? Are, I mean, are you sleeping and feeling rested when you wake up? Uh, and, and I think that there's a number of things that, you know, from everything, from like the Calm app, you know, where you can read bedtime stories to help you fall asleep if your mind is racing, to uh, meditation and mindfulness to help with this, uh, to e- not eating right before bed, watching alcohol. I mean, there's a million things. If you're speaking specifically about natural products, um, after you've done all the sleep hygiene and you've really been creative, it's limiting screen time, blue gla- blocking glasses, I think melatonin is definitely worth a trial and people who have a hard time falling asleep meaning they're laying there at night and they just can't fall asleep and now it's 11 12 o'clock and they have this pattern especially if they're older they're over 50 they have this delayed sleep problem i definitely think you should consider melatonin a trial of melatonin um and, 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 you know, people debate the dose, right? Point, you got those that are in the point 0.3, point 0.5 camp and those that are in the 3 and the 5 milligram camp and, you know, everything in between. So I'm pretty much at the 2 to 3 milligram sustained release, um, eight-week trial, and taken two hours before desired bedtime. Now, I want to be really clear what I said, two hours before the desired bedtime. So if you're falling asleep at midnight, but you want to go to bed at 10, you take it at 8. And I think this is a lot of the problems people have with melatonin. They take it like a sleeping pill, so when they can't go to sleep at 11:45, they take it with a glass of water, and then 15 minutes later, go. I'm not asleep. So melatonin is not a sleeping pill. It is a, it is a a, a biological clock regulator. And so if you want to go to bed at 10. You want to take it around eight. And I do think the extended or sustained release is a good idea. There's some potential anti-cancer benefits as well, as we know, with melatonin, usually at higher doses. But I think for melatonin, um, for sleep, I I think it's very worthwhile a trial. Mm -hmm. And, And I find that melatonin often can help women improve their mood. Uh, part of that may be they're sleeping better, so they're feeling better, but also many women tell me that their hot flashes are better, and that may be because melatonin helps drop body temperature, which is what makes you sleepy, uh, so there may be some additional benefit in hot flashes as well. Anything you would say different?
0: I'm pretty high in melatonin. I feel the same way. I'll say a few things. Melatonin is actually an area I'm very interested in from a research standpoint. And I think the 10 to 20 milligram dose in patients with advanced cancer, that's what's been studied. I've always felt that that's just a really high dose. You know, everything I've studied about melatonin says that even a little bit pretty much goes everywhere. And I think that dose was studied in part because it was safe. It was deemed safe. And so I think that's a separate question as to whether you need to take 10 to 20 milligrams. And at the 20 milligram dose, you know, some people will get kind of groggy or even develop some nightmares. So it's not that often that I get to 20 milligrams per se, but you know, most people will tolerate 10, for example. The other thing we just don't know, I think we're relatively melatonin deficient in modern times because if you're watching TV at night, et cetera, that actually suppresses melatonin production. And if you miss the boat on that, then your melatonin is low for the night. And so taking melatonin supplementation will help with that. But I think there are a lot of questions we just don't have answers to, like, will that dose suppress your own melatonin production or even the production and expression of your receptors for melatonin? And I don't think we have the answer for that. Like, if you're taking melatonin for years, what does that do to your own natural circadian rhythm and how much melatonin your body thinks it needs to see? That's something I've always been curious about, and I think we need to do more research in this area. But if you look at all the things melatonin does it's like a wonder hormone for your body. It's got antioxidant effects, it boosts the immune system function, especially in the area of breast cancer because it's also anti-estrogenic.
1: Exactly, I think that there, we have maybe a little more data than, than, than some people might think. Um, we know at least up to one year uh, when you withdraw, there, there is no suppression of melatonin. And it's probably because it doesn't work in a true hormonal fashion. Um, like we think of our other sort of standard hormones. So uh, I I think that we feel pretty comfortable with our use of it, um, at least up to a year. Now, as an integrative doc, I'm thinking if I'm not helping people get to sleep better, uh, if we're not using blue blocking glasses or helping with sleep hygiene or doing some of these things, then I've kind of missed the boat. Um, But I, I don't have a problem with using melatonin for longer periods as we're trying to work on improving sleep. The other thing is that the older you get, the less melatonin you produce, um, which is why the melatonin uh, extended release that's a drug in Europe it, it is a drug because it's not there's not over the counter melatonin in Europe. When they did all that research on the two milligram extended or sustained release, they approved it for people fifty five and over, and the reason for that is many, many older people make very little melatonin, which could also explain you know as its antioxidant activity and some of these other things it it may be really important in in elder individuals to take it so i'm a huge fan of melatonin i don't believe more is always better um and and i i feel comfortable using this in adolescence because a lot of our kids are on psychostimulants for attention deficit hyperactive disorder where melatonin can really help reset their their circadian clock so i i like it uh, and I think it can be very useful as part of a whole strategy. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I can't tell you how many people have been coming to me with that, uh, is it Calm app now uh, to the beds, bedtime stories, listening to bedtime stories? And I, I just had somebody last week was just telling me, I'm sleeping so much better, doc. It's like I listen to this bedtime story and I just fall asleep in the middle of it and then it goes off. And, um, I'm wondering if for some individuals, just where where it's hard to turn off the brain, that sort of bedtime story, distraction in the dark without a TV on and stuff, uh, that actually could be more useful than we think. So anyway, I I agree with you on the melatonin. I personally think that it's safe up to a year of use. Uh, I'm not aware of any rebound um, up to that duration, but it's another question 10, 20 years. I, I have no idea about that.
0: So let's continue talking about sleep. So, you talked about melatonin, making sure you take it two hours before sleep if you have issues with falling asleep. I think, obviously, exercise is important too. What are some of the other things that you recommend for those who are struggling with sleep?
1: Well, um, I, I do think that there's a number of botanicals that can be used in addition to, you know, a sleep ritual. You know, some people love essential oils, misted onto their bed. Some people, Uh, do well with a warm bath. I mean, so there's a lot of these things. Keeping alcohol down, because a lot of times people will fall asleep if they've had much alcohol, but wake up at two or three in the morning, can't fall back asleep. So looking at the sleep pattern. But for some people, ashwagandha, uh, an herb that comes to us uh, from the Indian subcontinent and and grows all the way into Africa, by the way. I saw it when I was in Africa. Ashwagandha is an herb that really helps people manage stress better. Uh, relieves anxiety, and in my own clinical experience, many patients who take ashwagandha after a few weeks start telling me they're sleeping much better. Not only do they feel calmer during the day and just sort of less anxious, but they note that they're more relaxed at night and uh, that they're sleeping better. So I think the use of some of these adaptogens may be very beneficial.
0: How do adaptogens work?
1: We believe they're primarily working through what we call the hypothalamic-pituitary-adrenal-gonadal-immune axis. It's a big axis, actually, but it involves the pituitary and the adrenal glands almost always. So when you study these, if you're doing salivary cortisol uh, as one of your biological markers, in addition to stress questionnaires or anxiety questionnaires, you almost always find a, a... a normalization of the cortisol diurnal slope. And what I mean by that is that in the morning, when you wake up 30 to 45 minutes after you awaken, you should get a nice big rise in cortisol, which then sort of trends down through the day and becomes low in the evening and at nighttime. That's the normal slope. You alter that slope by either reducing it in the morning so you don't get that big burst, and people will tell you, I'm exhausted, I'm tired, I wake up, I wake up tired. I've been checked for apnea. I've been checked for those things. I just wake up tired. Or you can have the other part where you flatten the slope by making the night not go down. So people feel just kind of wired and tired in the evening. Their cortisol hasn't fallen to the level that it should. Um, So many of these adaptogens and uh, now everybody's throwing adaptogens like it's, you know, it's like the newest fad. But in the classic sense, adaptogens have this effect on normalizing that HPA axis and usually by also renormalizing that cortisol slope. Ashwagandha has shown to do that. And so people tend to feel, after taking it for a few weeks, like they wake up a bit more refreshed. They feel calmer in the evening, more prepared for sleep. Uh, so, so I like ashwagandha um, for sleep for it, for people who are having kind of chronic sleep problems um, and uh, that are accompanied by stress, maybe tired uh, you know, not, not feeling like they have much energy during the day. Mm-hmm. The other ones that I would think of one is it, are combinations of herbs. I typically use combinations, but I really, really, really like California poppy for pain related insomnia. So, those living in California know these beautiful orange colored California poppies that just, you know, light up the, the hillside. It's long been used for pain and and for sleep and sleep problems. I personally find California poppy to be very, very beneficial for some of our patients who are dealing with with neuropathy or other kinds of pain that keep them from falling asleep or staying asleep i really like california poppy the european monograph actually on california poppy suggests that it be considered in people with pain related sleep problems so so i think it's an underused plant a native plant in this country Um, and how much is used oftentimes these are extracts but but somewhere in that 500 to a thousand milligrams of California poppy taken before bed and at least a week's trial to see how people are going to do on it related to the opium poppy, but does not contain the same addictive kinds of alkaloids, but definitely a sedative. Uh, and then there are others, the passion flower and the, and the valerian lemon balms. Usually these in combination can be beneficial. I do want to caution people though about valerian, valerian, even in accordance with the European monographs on on valerian, it does not work very well acutely. You have to give it a 14-day trial before you determine whether it's going to work for you or not. It builds over time. Most of the time you see the separation out with placebo at about day 12 to 14. So if you're going to use valerian as a sleep aid, Know that you need to commit to using it every night for at least two to three weeks before you decide if it's going to work for you or not. Valerian can be a reliable sleep aid. A lot of people just, you know, they try it for a few nights, think it's going to put them to sleep. And when it doesn't, they just say, oh, I tried it, it never worked. So just just another aside on valerian. And I like the combinations of valerian and passionflower, things like this. So those are some thoughts around, around it. But, you know, don't forget things like Those new bedtime story apps or the new white noise, things, you know, I haven't had so many patients over the years say my mind just races when I lay down to go to bed. And when they listen to a bedtime story, think about it. Just like a little kid who can't unwind and they hear a bedtime story, their mind now is no longer bouncing in a million places. It's focused on listening to a story that's not very exciting, doesn't go many places, but it, it helps them sleep. So I think have a broad array of tools in your toolbox for sleep. And, and if you suspect restless legs, check ferritin. If you think sleep is a problem with, because of apnea, make sure a sleep study, all the other things, but, but not having good sleep is a surefire way to be tired, depressed, anxious, and not
0: get well. What about essential oils? I love
1: essential oils. Um, I think people don't appreciate uh, quality and also how much it takes of a plant to make a small amount of essential oil. So you do want to be very careful. If you're if you're buying an essential oil, what this is is basic. Most of these are done through steam distillation. So you take an awful lot of plant and you use a steam distillation process and you take a little bit of this volatile oil fraction off. And I'll give you an example. I used many pounds of rosemary from our garden, and I got less than one ounce of rosemary essential oil. I mean, so a lot of plant to make a very little oil. What you've got now is this very, very concentrated, highly aromatic uh, component of the original plant, which can be used in aromatherapy. It can be used topically for you know all kinds of things. my concern is people should be careful about using these internally without appropriate supervision, right? Some of these can be quite toxic if they're taken internally. Um but for aromatherapy, oh my goodness, I mean diffusing these things into the room, um mixing some essential oil with a little bit of alcohol like vodka, and then in, in a bottle of water. You need alcohol. If you're gonna mix it with water, oil and alcohol don't mix, so you gotta add it to a little bit of vodka or other kind of alcohol, and then mix it in your spray bottle. And these can be misted in the workplace, misted around your desk, misted on your pillow. A lot of people like lavender. Uh, Peppermint is is good for headaches and for nausea and vomiting. I don't know if you're aware of a study that was done actually in patients. uh, More than 100 patients uh, were having cardiac surgery and had been consented after the surgery to either receive Peppermint essential oil, or to just get the standard anti-emetic. and it was dramatic. The number of people who had nausea after their um, surgery who underwent just smelling the aromatherapy of peppermint, just a little, you know, a little bottle under the nose. How many of them the nausea was completely relieved, and almost all by the second. Some people needed to breathe it again a few minutes later. But I just want you to think about that, how easy it was to administer, how it didn't introduce another drug, how people liked it, and how people can use this also at home. Uh, But, you know, when we're thinking um, chemotherapy, when we're thinking about uh, nausea and vomiting of pregnancy, when we're thinking of just these different times when people may, uh, migraines, they may be having a migraine and feeling nauseous. this is a, a, a really interesting tool. So shows just how powerful the power of smell can be um, for an individual. But I like essential oils. I, I just, gosh, there's a lot of multi-level marketing essential oils going on right now. And so you've got a lot of very committed people talking to people about it. And wherever I go in the country... I am hearing stories of people taking these things internally for everything, and I'd say I would be very cautious about that. Uh, Essential oils can be very powerful and can be dangerous uh, if you don't know what you're doing taking them internally.
0: Another symptom we touched on earlier is this idea of chemo fog or chemo brain that many people experience after chemotherapy. What kinds of things can we offer for those people who feel like they just aren't as sharp and have some decline after they're done with chemotherapy?
1: So if they're back and they're, you know, and, and we're finished with treatment and, um, you know, and we're doing everything, we're making sure that their nutrition status is good, exercise is good, exercise is great for the brain, by the way. Um, all of these things, then I do think you can, uh, you can look to some of the, uh, botanicals that, that were historically, but also now, you know, being researched for cognition. One of my favorites is bacopa, Um, bacopa, another plant that comes to us uh, from Asia and the Indian subcontinent. But uh, I've used this plant for a very, very long time in my practice in kids with sort of um, learning issues, but also in um, menopausal women who complain of this menopausal fog. And they're like, I'm, I'm sharp. I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm a business executive and I just can't even." Think right. So, as long as they're getting good sleep and we're doing all these other things, because when you don't sleep well, it definitely affects your cognition. But if they're lingering things, Bacopa is one of my first to go to. Um, I'm intrigued by it. And I'm intrigued by the fact that for several thousand years, it was used by Vedic scholars to actually memorize long passages and long pieces of work. This is not a new this is not a new use when uh, when when our USP panel was reviewing the safety of Bacopa. So just looking at safety of it, uh, I got to speak with a number of Ph.D.s from India who had, were, who had done their Ph.D. work on Bacopa. And um, I learned a lot from them, people who've studied this for more than 30 years. And and I tell you, there is definitely something there. Um and, and I'd usually tell patients it's worth an 8 to 12-week trial. Let's see how you feel. Tell me if you feel a difference. And if they do, we've, we've done something good. If they don't notice much difference in 12 weeks, then I usually just discontinue it because I don't think they will. But um, that's, one of my, that's one of my favorites for this, actually.
0: What about turmeric, or sometimes I'll recommend lion's mane.
1: I love lion's mane. I'm, I'm curious to see more research on it, but I love this mushroom. And of course, if you hear Paul Stamets talk about it, I mean, you know, it just, he could make anybody just think this is the most amazing mushroom, the smart mushroom. Uh, Definitely. um, It it seems to have some profound effect on, on, you know, BDNF on, on a brain derived neurotrophic factor on, on myelin. I mean, so the very structures of the brain that feed and nourish the brain, uh, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of randomized controlled trials. There's a lot of good basic science and some small studies, but I think lion's mane, uh, Bacopa has very much these same properties, by the way, same thing with BDNF and a number of these other properties. Um, I think lion's mane, because it's delicious you can buy it at our Whole Foods and cook it up in a pan and eat it. Uh, Lion's mane is a food medicine. So I definitely think this is one that uh, individuals can eat and they could also consider supplementing. We have no real concern about safety with either one of these.
0: Sounds good. And I mean, I would just add to everything you just said that, you know, sleep is very important. We also know that there are a lot of concurrent diagnoses between what we consider chemo brain and depression, which is unfortunately common as well, and then stress. So managing stress, meditation, exercise, all of these things put together can try to address all the issues that might be causing the symptoms.
1: I think depression is, um, you know, it can can be easily missed. Uh, And I just say that as a primary care provider, Uh, depression can be missed uh some people are very strong they're very tough and of course now they've gone through the fight of their life if they've if they've had a bad diagnosis and they've gone through their treatment and now it's kind of over so they were just you know they rallied friends they they did everything to get through this and now it's now it's over and now they're sort of you know it's it's it it's kind of like sometimes when uh, college kids, you see them in the winter break, and they were studying, studying, studying for the finals, and they were doing great. And then they come home, and now they get sick. Right? It's kind of like all the adrenaline; everything was focused on it, and now that it's kind of done, now now they uh, they feel the effects. And depression, you know, has just so many faces, and it it looks different in different cultures. It looks different between men and women, uh, and I and and if you say you know it sounds like you're depressed, a lot of times people will say no, but if you say things, it sounds like sounds like you're just tired and and uh, maybe feeling a little bit down. Uh, that people often say, yeah, that's true. So I even think the way we approach it, the language that we use can either bring people in to share this feeling or it can set people a- apart i've I've spoken to many uh many people who i've said you know the word depressed and they're like no 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 because that almost feels like a character weakness um but when you when you say it sounds like you're feeling maybe kind of tired or feeling maybe kind of down like you've been through a lot maybe you're just feeling kind of tired after all this then it opens up the conversation uh but uh you know it's interesting uh, for depression there may be medication but cognitive behavioral therapy or counseling if they're open to it can often be a way for them to to talk about this journey which ultimately no matter how many people you have around you when you're on that cancer journey ultimately you're alone you're alone in your own mind and and you're wrestling with am i going to be here to see my kids am i am i am i going to grow old is this going to take my life? Is it going to come back? And for many people, um, even if it's not depression, it raises many, many, many things that they may not want to talk about with their partner or their spouse or their kids because, because of just the enormity, the weight of it. And sometimes it's hard for people to even find the words to express it. So you know, how do you suggest having somebody to go talk to, whether it's a support group or a counselor or, you know, how do you begin to have those conversations with people so that they can uh, they can begin to, you know, write their journey, uh, write a story about it, uh, write a letter to it. Uh, but I think you know what I'm saying, but I've been dealing with depression for many, many reasons and, and, and that uh, and for in many, many people over the last 35 years. And I'm just telling you, when people tell me they're tired, they got a brain fog, they're not sleeping well, there's some anxiety, there's these things, I'm very cognizant to make sure I'm exploring these deeper feelings. And I think that's especially true um, in patients who've finished their treatment uh, for cancer and now they're just kind of wondering how do I, how do I get my life back? How do, how, do I, how, do I, how do I get back to where I want to be?
0: And I think part of it is just listening also. Everybody has their own story to tell, and the cancer is one part of it, but sometimes that can trigger a lot of other issues, whether it's issues at home or financial issues. But for, for me as a medical oncologist, I'm also always cognizant that some of the anxiety is totally understandable, and part of my job is to try to do the best I can to treat them and give them hope. That they're going to be fine, um, and then on top of that, listening, and and all of us can do that, and then using, like you said, all the resources we have, making sure we're not ignoring any of these symptoms. So very important. I want to shift now to talking about some of the unique issues that women face as they go through the cancer journey. You're an expert on women's health. You've written uh, books on this subject. You wrote Women's Health in Complementary and Integrative Medicine. And then you co-edited with uh, Dr. Victoria Mays' Integrative Women's Health. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of the unique issues that women face as they go through the cancer journey?
1: So, you know, um, so when we look at at the problems that many women see that are uh, that are unique to women, we see vaginal dryness, uh, which can be so painful, and and of course the the urinary symptoms that then occur, you know, can lead to incontinence, you know, pain with intimacy. So that's one. Hot flashes we see um, and night sweats. We also can see joint pain, you know, with some of the hormonal therapies with breast cancer, you know, the AIs. I mean, so there's a there's a whole array that we see, and I, I would just tell you, um, like for the vaginal dryness uh, problem, there are all the non-hormonal things that a woman could consider, like sea buckthorn oil. Uh, it's it's a very interesting um, omega seven rich oil that can be applied to the external and uh, genitalia and, and intravaginally. There is some research showing beneficial effects that, that research came out of Finland um, for improving cytology and pH. There's the refresh product um, that you're probably aware of because a lot of us recommend it. Um, it keeps that pH down below four and, and you know three times a week for 12 weeks in breast cancer patients. Did show improvement in vaginal dryness and discomfort. So, and, and the refresh product with a pH in it, not an F, uh, is available at many places. Uh, you know that you can get. Replens is a decent vaginal moisturizing gel, and then there's a variety of lubricants ranging from coconut oil, vitamins, suppositories to Yes. You know, I like the Yes product actually because it's got a good pH and good osmolality. So uh, for a lubricant. But I think the problem and I'm going to be really candid is that a lot of these with a few exceptions are like lubricants, they're moisturizers. They don't actually change the cytology. And you know, what do you say to a woman who's 40 years old who says, you know, you know, I've gone through my treatment for my breast cancer and and you know, now I I can't have intercourse with my husband or my partner. You know, am I looking at this for the rest of my life? I mean, that is a hard thing. So I am I am not opposed to vaginal estrogen. I think a lot of oncologists have gotten more comfortable. Clearly somebody listening to this podcast that's a not a clinician should talk to their oncologist about it. But I think I think many people have gotten more comfortable, especially after our observational data, three and a half years of follow-up using vaginal estrogen and women on aromatase inhibitors or tamoxifen not showing any you know change in survivorship. But I am I am a believer that actually vaginal estrogen applied daily for two weeks and then a couple times a week is, for many women, one of their best options. If the other things don't work, and I'm just telling you a lot of them don't, um, vaginal estrogen is something that really should be discussed. I'm curious what your thoughts are.
0: Well, my answer to that would probably be nuanced. I, I think that for some women, um, the symptoms are so significant that Uh, It's really impairing any quality of life, and and in those situations, um, I would be supportive of using uh, vaginal estrogen. I think that the concern over vaginal estrogen is, um, you know, how much systemic absorption you're getting, and um, there's no real proof that you're getting a significant uh, increase in estrogen levels, but we also, at the same time, uh, urge caution to just, you know, not use it on everyone. Um, So I think that you have to take things uh, on a case-by-case basis and see how significant the symptoms are and uh, what the clinical situation is otherwise. But uh, I think as we learn more, I am supportive of using um, topical uh, vaginal estrogen um, when uh, other uh, therapies are not working. I think another thing that um, I've uh, heard about, and I have a colleague who um, who specializes in this area? Who's a gynecologist and has been using uh, uh, DHEA? And um, you know, apparently that's uh, sometimes very effective. Um, would not, uh, from research studies, increase estrogen levels. I'm curious about your thoughts on that as well.
1: Oh yeah, uh, DHEA suppositories. Uh huh. It's topical. Uh huh. Yep, there. It's 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 applied intravaginally your vaginal estrogen really doesn't, like a ring, doesn't really substantially, I mean, the, the creams kind of transiently cause a rise. But, but, but you know, um, I think as a woman's health practitioner, you know, you get these young women now that uh, they've survived their breast cancer, and now they're looking at 50 years. They may have 50 years, and, and they're right. just, and nothing has helped. And I think that this is where you know, the conversation is really important. Uh, but I do know, I, I do know that, um, that this is becoming more acceptable and, and you try everything else, the coconut oil, the sea yeah. buckthorn, the refresh, the, you know, all of the things. And then you see, but, you know, I'll tell you, cause I see a lot of women who, who, um, just have gone through menopause, right? I mean, they maybe had a surgical menopause and they're not on any kind of treatments. They didn't have breast cancer, but this is a progressive problem. After menopause, this is a progressive problem. Vaginal dryness and atrophy doesn't improve like hot flashes does. It, it It is a progressive problem. And for many women, vaginal estrogen can be extremely beneficial. So again, this is an area that you know I tell women, I usually ask to have the conversation with the oncologist to see where the comfort level is. Um, with with vaginal estrogen, um, so before we're recommending it to a woman who's had breast cancer, uh, you know, an a ER positive, that we discuss it. But that, but but I think this is an interesting area, and the DHEA can be beneficial. A Number of naturopaths paths use it as well as physicians. Um, I've reviewed that data.
0: What about arthralgias? Yeah,
1: so here um, here I definitely think you know as integrative practitioners, we want to talk about exercise. I know that that seems counterintuitive, but exercise does improve joint pain uh, in patient on, you know, on aromatase inhibitors. Studies show that. Acupuncture can be really beneficial as it can be for any kind of pain. Um, I like the topical rubs. I think it doesn't matter what kind of joint pain you have. From whatever cause, people do not use enough topicals. They should because studies suggest they do play a role in helping to ease pain. So that could include, um, you know, CBD or, or marijuana oils. Um, it could include arnicas, menthols, you know, a variety of these kind of rubs. I am a fan of curcumin or turmeric. I am. I think, you know, getting anti-inflammatory and joint pain. The Tufts review that came out, I think, 2018, looking at both buswellia and curcumin, did conclude that the, that the data supports their use singly and together for, for osteoarthritis type of pain, but there's no reason to think that it wouldn't also be beneficial here. So, and omega threes. And I think you want to have a uh, collective approach to dealing with joint pain because what you do not want is women stopping their medication because they're so uncomfortable. I mean, which also means you can use ibuprofen, and SAIDs and other things, um, but but I would I would try to look at uh, things that actually have fewer adverse effects um, and that will help her overall health in the long work, in the long term. Because omega threes will be beneficial, turmeric will be beneficial, so will exercise. And don't forget, pain is also very placebo responsive. Meaning, and again, don't take me wrong. When I'm saying that, what I'm saying is. There is no reason to believe then that mindfulness, hypnosis, cognitive behavioral therapy, yoga, all of these things would not be beneficial because I believe they are for any kind of pain problem.
0: I want to talk also about bone health. You know, so bone health for men and for women as they age or as the result of hormonal therapy for prostate cancer or for breast cancer, you know, just a huge issue. What are the things that we can do Let's take another example of a woman who's on hormonal therapy for breast cancer, like an which decreases estrogen. And let's say it's a relatively young woman at 50 years old who was on hormonal therapy for many years and is now found to have some bone loss or osteopenia. How would you help that person strengthen or protect her bone health?
1: I would put her, um, try to refer her to a local um, facility where she could get some really good. age appropriate and well-designed, uh, weight resistance training exercises. Um, we know that actually for women in particular, Oh, we'll go run on the treadmill. We'll get on the elliptical, but we do not like resistance training. That is, that is something I will just tell you, I have seen over the many years and you're not going to get strong bones without, without resistance training. So, um, there's a these fit and 50s and some of these kinds of um facilities where you can get personalized training uh to help you uh get a program in place so so that that's a big thing for me adequate amounts of protein is another checking vitamin D how much calcium is she taking um you know, at, at, at 50, I would say she should be moving over to a type of citrate, a calcium type of citrate, and she should be supplementing the difference between what is in her diet and what her treatment and what the recommended daily intake is. So for many women, that may be three to 600 milligrams uh, per day. And then I recommend a good multivitamin in addition, um, that is going to have, you know, all the other things you need. Um, You got to have magnesium to activate vitamin D, so you got to have magnesium. You got to have vitamin K to to activate osteocalcin in the bone and make sure you're uptaking the calcium appropriately. So, uh, I mean, and zinc and other things play a role. There's a whole smorgasbord. But your your uh, calcium, your vitamin D, um, a good multivitamin with magnesium, those are important. Um, Some women will need, um, you know, we have the FRAX, F R A X. Uh, some women, uh, you know, may actually need bisphosphonates. We may, may may need to put them on a on a on a drug or a prolia. We may we may need to put them on something. Um, this the FRAX tool will allow for um, secondary types of osteoporosis due to drugs or treatment, and so uh, these algorithms can be useful in part of the clinical judgment on when to put a woman on this. But for me. I'm very, very aggressive with exercise, weight resistance, weight-bearing, uh, movement, watching, uh, you know, uh, making sure we're maximizing protein, uh, good healthy proteins, uh, limiting things that are, are harmful for the bones, and then being strategic with our calcium, our vitamin D, and then the cofactors that go along with it.
0: And just to clarify, that's vitamin K2, right? Yep,
1: vitamin K2. You, you know, if you have vitamin K... Uh, you know, you convert a certain amount of that with your bacteria. But if you're actually looking at a supplement that will benefit, vitamin K2 um, has been uh, what has been studied um, for beneficial effect on bone alone or in combination with calcium and vitamin D.
0: On your website, you actually have a vitamin D cheat sheet, which um, I think is super useful for anybody who wants to look at that. What do you... What do you usually gauge as a um, as deficient and uh, as replenished vitamin D? Because sometimes those numbers can get confusing. <laughs> they do. So um,
1: and I think I think um, reasonable people can disagree a little bit on the lower end. Uh, the Institute of Medicine defines a, a low level uh, of insufficiency or deficiency as less than twenty nanograms per mil or 50 nanomoles per liter, depending upon the units that you're using. Most, most researchers actually, though, believe it's closer to 30 to 50 nanograms per mil, um, for an optimal range. I I am in that camp myself. And I think many patients, you know, you want them at, you want them between that 30 and 50 range and 40, maybe a sweet spot. Um, the, the issue I think is that many of us who do a test for vitamin D and somebody we suspect may have low vitamin D, even in New Mexico, their levels come back six, nine, 11. So, uh, clearly we we, we see more of this than we realize. So that's where I go is 30 to 50 nanograms per mil, but you should be aware that, um, When you're reviewing a study, for example, they may define the cutoff as 20 nanograms per mil and and conclude that somebody at 22 is in the normal range. So you have to read the studies carefully. I, on the other hand, do not believe for the general public that they need to be going up to 80 or 100 nanograms per mil with vitamin D for no apparent reason. So uh, vitamin D, sweet spot, probably 30 to 50. And I think that, you know, I would ask you as an oncologist, you know, somebody who sees, you know, oncology patients all the time, what are your thoughts on vitamin D and, uh, and somebody who comes in extremely deficient, maybe who's got prostate cancer or breast cancer?
0: Well, I have pr- pretty much the same goals as you do. Um, there was one study that looked at vitamin D levels to help uh, reduce arthralgias in um, women who are diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, on aromatase inhibitors, and the level that uh, that was useful in that study was forty. I think some people have looked at previous studies and used fifty as an example, but the 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 numbers in in breast cancer studies are kind of all over the place between thirty to fifty. So I tend to try to be practical because I think the first step is just um, is being more kind of what zone are you in? And if you're less than twenty, then I would agree you're deficient and it's enough to get somebody up. And I'm not so precise because I think the studies are not precise to say, well, you're really right. at 38, we need to get that right. to 42. And then and then I think the mentality of many patients is that more of something is better. And so they get to 50 and they say, well, I really, really don't wanna get cancer. So I'm gonna get up to 70. And I say, you know, that's not necessary. Um, I think the other thing that I was gonna ask you though, that gets confusing is about racial disparities. You know, we know that um, amongst uh, darker-skinned people, um, you you know, your vitamin D levels may be lower because you don't um, absorb as much of the ultraviolet radiation. And uh, and there are studies that say that for African Americans, for example, you can have a low vitamin D level and not have the same fracture risk as somebody who's who's white. Um, do you have any sense from a cancer standpoint uh, if that same description holds true, or, or do you pretty much use the 30 to 50 range for, for everybody, no matter what race you are?
1: Well, I think the data on fracture has been has been interesting um, uh, when it comes to African-American women, which is where, where I'm more familiar with the, the female data. Um, but I think that it's also very limited to think of vitamin D simply for fracture, uh, since it has such a wide array of activity in the body. And I am not convinced that um that we shouldn't be striving for a similar level it's in women uh, or men, but in in African American patients for. Uh, cancer, as well as immune health. I mean, lupus, I know this is not on lupus, but when we think of lupus and autoimmune conditioning that typically is far more severe in African-American women, more renal involvement, more adverse, uh, severe adverse effects from from the disease, vitamin D is crucial. Um, so I, I, I would hesitate to use the fracture data to extrapolate uh, in the African American population across all all potential benefits of vitamin D, and I think 30 to 50, we should still be striving for. And in the case of lupus, they often will drive it a bit higher uh, when the disease is active. So, so anyway, I hope I answered your question. But I, I, I you know, now we've got uh, even in children. As a little aside. In Canada, the study that was done in Montreal in the wintertime showed newborn babies who were breastfed, 400 was not enough, which is what we recommend for newborn babies. And their new recommendations are for dark-skinned babies or babies born from October through April that if they're breastfed, it should be 800 IUs per day. One has to look at that and go, well, how different is Montreal than like Boston, right? So a darker-skinned And, and, you know, uh, and giving different doses and seeing what level you can get to. So we're, we're seeing this from newborn babies all the way to older age. And I don't know about you, but when I went through medical school, vitamin D was like, it was funny. I think back, but it was like, oh my gosh, be really careful. It's fat soluble. If people take too much, it's really, really dangerous. And so vitamin D was treated like this really toxic supplement. And so I think for many physicians who trained, you know, 30 years ago, this new enlightenment around vitamin D has been um, both illuminating and also also surprising, given, given what we thought 30 years ago about the toxicity of vitamin D, even in low ranges, low supplementation.
0: Now, vitamin D3 is what we usually recommend. It's better absorbed, but it comes from animal sources, right? So if someone is vegetarian, can you still take vitamin D3 or can you take a vegetarian vitamin D3? And if not, do you recommend vitamin D2 and what kind of doses?
1: So, um, most vegetarians do not object to vitamin D3 because it comes from lanolin from wool. So, a lot of vegetarians wear wool clothing, um, you know, but some vegans may be opposed to that. And at that point, vitamin DT, D2 is available. We do believe that at six to eight weeks, vitamin D2 you know, the body is able to take it and use it. Um, and your choice there is if, if somebody's going to take it or not take it, vitamin D2 is, is a good option. Um, it's also what we use. That's what's available is for 50,000 I use to replace. Uh, so when we write a prescription for that, it's vitamin D2 that people are using to replete vitamin uh, D deficiency. So, um, Vitamin D3 is the one that we recommend, and it it is in our guidelines, uh, is to recommend vitamin D3. But vitamin D2 can be used for those who are vegans and opposed to the use of anything that comes from an animal, including the lanolin from wool.
0: What do you think about these supplements that have boron or strontium in them?
1: So, you know, boron is, you know, definitely plays a role in bone and you know, you need a certain amount of boron. And so they're often in bone supplements. I I have no objection to them. The strontium is interesting. Um, The strontium renolate, which, you know, was approved in Europe um, for the treatment of osteoporosis. Um, There were some safety concerns in uh, patients who had underlying cardiovascular problems. So um, there was some caution placed on strontium in Europe for this. I'm not sure if you're going to see similar benefit or risk from using some of the other sodium salts like that we have available. Um, I actually am not I don't think there is an issue with the ones that are found in the dietary supplements. There may be some beneficial effect um, but but you should be aware that there was there was um, concern there is concern in Europe. Uh, With strontium, it's now a a secondary line of treatment, not a primary, for osteoporosis because some of the concerns around cardiovascular risk.
0: I want to talk to you a little bit about hot flashes. You know, we started talking now about symptoms that women face going through this cancer journey. Hot flashes are so common, especially for those women uh, on hormonal therapy um, after a diagnosis of breast cancer, for example what are some of the things that you found that work and don't work in battling hot flashes?
1: Getting women sleeping better is one of the first things, right? So sleep, sleep may be important. We talked about melatonin earlier. Um, there's obviously the extended release venlafaxine, which can be used, um, you know, for women who are having more severe hot flashes uh, and that may also have some depression going along Um you know, um, gabapentin, perhaps if she also has neuropathy. I mean, so in some cases, as integrative clinicians, we're trying to match some of these, these symptoms together, right? So if we're going to use something for hot flashes, we're going to try to, we're trying to get going to get a two for right, we're going to try to get two for one there. None are as effective as hormone therapy. (laughs) So I mean, that's just, you know, that that's, that's just a fact that we deal with. Um, Having said that, I also know that from menopause research and my involvement in that community, um, plus hot flashes are incredibly placebo responsive. Incredibly placebo-responsive. Which to me really speaks to the role of hypnosis, mindfulness, stress management, all of these things that, you know, we think of Placebo responsive, as like it's a bad thing. When I think of that, I think, wow, that means there's a real place for mind body, a, a whole strategy there.
0: And yoga, there's some research for yoga. Yes, yoga. yoga.
1: So, and, and hypnosis, both in men and women who've had hot flashes with, you know, androgen deprivation therapy as well as breast cancer. And, and mindfulness, isn't it interesting? And cognitive behavioral therapy, all of these things, even in patients who, in people, who still had hot flashes, what did they report? Less bothersome. They didn't bother Mm -hmm. me as much. Yeah, I'm still having hot flashes, but they don't bother me as much. So I think it speaks to what we've always known, that there's a stress component also to hot flashes. They're worse when we're under stress. So don't ignore those. Acupuncture, for many women, uh, find this, not only that it helps with hot flashes, but it helps with sleep, helps with energy. So you know, I, I would say that there's a number of these things. When it comes to soy, of course, I recommend women if they enjoy soy, soy foods to eat them. Some women find some benefit with fermented, you know, soy or soy products, but I have to be honest, it's not dramatic. And black cohosh, while I don't think it's unsafe, because I I just got to tell you, the data out of UIC shows you can't make that thing estrogenic. Um, I also, I think it is more beneficial for the anxiety and arthralgias less than the hot flashes, which is also consistent with its traditional use. And then there's a whole host of others, maca, you know, uh, some women say it helps with hot flashes and libido. Um, you know, sage, uh, sage has some estrogenic activity to it. Uh, the tea though, often can be helpful for women to, to help with hot flashes. Um, but, but there none of these are, how do I say this? That, that some women get great responses to them. Um, but I've had just as many women who've just come back and said, gosh, that really didn't work that great. So I think this is individualized. I think that, um, that is, I'm looking for safety. Are are they are they safe to use? And then we're looking at efficacy. I don't know what your experience is. Um, clearly, you work with lots of women who are coming in asking for these things as well. Um, but but that's my take on it.
0: Well, it's so variable, and our goal is that it doesn't impair your quality of life. You know, so for some people. They say they have hot flashes, but it tends to be a couple of times a day, and it's something that you can kind of live with. But when it gets really concerning is when someone says it interrupts their sleep, or it's just an ongoing problem, or it gets bad enough that they want to stop their hormonal medication. And I do have mixed results with pretty much all the things you just mentioned. And so I just try whatever I can. And for me, it's pretty clear when someone needs a medication. And unfortunately, our integrative approaches aren't so good that it'll work for everyone. And for those people who have worse symptoms, I will go to the Effexor or something like that. In somebody with really mild symptoms, I don't know if you've ever heard about this uh, Swedish herb, relizen. Sometimes I've used that, uh, or even uh, there's a homeopathic product, Actiane, um, and occasionally I'll use those and I've had uh, somewhat mixed results with those.
1: Well, a lot of these are mixed results. I mean, that's what I've, uh you know, this is this is the thing for some women, boy, it just hits it out of the park. And they say, my gosh, I'm doing so much better. Um, and, and, and in those women, you're like, that is so awesome. I mean, you are. It's so awesome. But as an integrative physician, I don't, you know, I'm not looking at effects or, you know, an extended release. I, I'm not looking at that like it's somehow less than or more than. I'm just looking at that as one more tool in my toolbox. And for some women who are having hot flashes poor sleep and depressed mood because of the whole thing um that can be that can be just amazing um so so for me it's it's not it's not having a judgment around what the intervention is it's it's simply remembering the individual is at the center and what do i you know how severe is what it is uh, can I start with milder inven- interventions? But even if I was going to use effexor, I still may be talking about hypnosis, stress reduction, meditation, talking about all the things that long in the long run are going to help her. You know, just a side note. I, I had a pretty significant eye injury this this uh, weekend and ended up in the ER with a pretty bad corneal laceration. Um, actually, cut the, my cut my eyeball. And as the man, the ER doc, who was wonderful in Santa Fe, is you know using the slit lamp and the Woods lamp and that, he made the comment to my husband and I. He's like, I just can't believe how calm you are and how you're not blinking and how you're sitting so calmly. I mean, he really was just, he he seemed very stunned. And I looked right at him and I said, years and years of meditation. And he looked at me and said, you know, I believe that. He said, I believe that. He said, I need to do more of that. So all I'm saying is that meditation creates space. It creates space between what you're experiencing and your reaction to it. And 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 i believe that that's why it also helps with hot flashes it can help with pain it can help with anxiety but that's just a little anecdote right there of being in a situation where somebody's asking how how are you so calm and it was like i didn't even have to hesitate years of meditation just between what you're doing that's and my great. reaction so so i think that meditation i think you're a fan too Um, But for hot flashes, for neuropathic pain, for many of these things our patients may experience, while we may use pharmaceuticals, botanical supplements, and other things, acupuncture, hypnosis, meditation should always be considered as part of that journey if it may be helpful.
0: Well, you said something that really hits home for me. I also say the same thing when I'm talking with colleagues or patients. Yes, I may want to do what I can to reduce toxicity and to try as many natural type of treatments or therapies, or easier to employ therapies as I can. I think all of us as integrative practitioners feel that way. But at the end of the day, I'm practical. You know, so this is not a philosophy for me. If something works and has less toxicity, that's great. But then if it's not working, we go to whatever drug or medication or obviously for cancer, chemotherapy. I think that's a really important aspect of integrative medicine in general.
1: Integrative medicine is a way you view the world. It's a it's a position by which a lens by which you view the world. It's not a modality, an herb, an acupuncture needle, or a drug. There's there, we don't distinguish between those. We really don't. It's it's about seeing the world in a more whole fashion and seeing human beings as more as individuals and whole individuals. And how do we come alongside with them and partner with them uh, to get them the best outcome that is consistent with their goals, their values, and, and, and their desires. And, and oftentimes you'll find that this involves a whole array of treatments or uh, options. What I, what I don't like is when people often equate integrative with alternative, meaning that in integrative medicine, we're primarily looking at alternative approaches. No, we're, We're looking at, here's an individual, here's what's going on, and what are the array of options? And in some cases, I will just tell you, we do not have good Western options. Um, And so that brings in acupuncture, meditation, botanicals, supplements, and and I would say in some cases, we don't have good alternative options, and Western approaches are the very best we can offer. So I just... I used to say this to the fellows at the fellowship at the U of A. It's like this is not about this is not about rejecting everything you've ever learned. It's about expanding what you know, in addition to your training as a physician, a nurse, a PA, et cetera. Hypnosis, cognitive behavioral therapy, yoga—all of these things would not be beneficial because I believe they are for any kind of pain problem.
0: Well, thank you, Tyrone. Uh, it's obvious. To anybody listening, how knowledgeable you are, and you know, I wish we had more time to talk about all these different uh, topics. I want to take a step back and uh, talk to you about something personal, and that is your own diagnosis of cancer. Um, you know, I I, th- I think you've started um, sharing some of your experience, and I, I wanted to ask if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit as uh, somebody with your background as a healer that uh you were diagnosed uh I think 14 years ago with cancer and what that was like and and what what you've learned over the years um from having a diagnosis of cancer what you, what you did that helped and what you might want to share with others
1: so uh not only a diagnosis but then a significant recurrence 6 years ago you know stage 4 so um, you know, that the, what is fascinating is to think that that um, somebody couldn't get cancer because, you know, lions in Africa develop tumors living out, you know, in the Masai you know, out in the middle of nowhere, eating their diet that they've always eaten. And and so cancer has been with us for a very, very long time. And. Uh, and and it's certainly a combination of of genetics and, and environment and um, and one could say luck, good or bad luck, whether you do or don't get it. But what I will say is that um, while I would never ever want or chose to have gotten cancer, um, she ended up being one of my greatest teachers, um, especially you know six years ago when. You know, I I tripped and fell over my dog and uh, thought I'd broken my tailbone and went in. And, uh, you know, I just from 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 my from my pelvis to my liver was just um, just tumor everywhere. And, uh, you know, that's not something you ever want to hear. And and uh, and. And just the feeling, the weight of that, you know, like here we are again and it's really bad. There's badness and, uh, and, and there is a sense that your body has betrayed you, which is, I think one of the most, uh, difficult feelings to wrestle with is somehow my body betrayed me. Like it didn't, it didn't catch this. It didn't fight it. It, it, it. It didn't do its job. And that's something I had to really wrestle with and get comfortable with was that, you know, my body didn't betray me, but my body is strong, you know, um, that I didn't somehow deserve this because I was a bad person or a good person. Um, this is just what is at this time I had, uh, I, I will tell you, I went through aggressive treatment. Um, and, I was standing in New York. I've been given a uh, lifetime achievement award because everybody, everybody here is stage four and thinks we better give her the lifetime achievement award Cause she's going to die soon. Uh, so they gave me my award and I'm standing there with my family and a physician comes up to me an a MD and says, you know, Dr. Lodog, I have followed your career for years and, you know, I've just really, you know, I've, I've, I've really thought a lot of you over the years and I started to smile and he says, but you know, you're such a hypocrite. You know, I can't believe you would take like chemotherapy and radiation and you know, I'm not, I'm not going to follow you anymore. And you know, I just think you're an incredible hypocrite, which I felt then my husband and my daughter sort of just tensing. And I took his face, you know, in my hands and I just said, bless you. You know just bless you um i wasn't sure what else to say because whatever it was was his stuff not mine but i do think that there is a way in which people think that if you're in integrative medicine that somehow you know you're going to you're going to use herbs and things to heal you and i actually wanted to use the very best of what was available to enhance my survival now i am still here i'm six years out and um eventually you know i'm going in for scans and everything and eventually i just couldn't figure out how to move past it like how do you how do you live like you're dying without living like you're dying and 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 that that is a huge thing and and i'll i will just share something very personal you know it's like I uh, I took some of my hair and I made a little bag and I went up to a place on the mountain and I took some sage and tobacco and uh, I thanked my cancer as if she was a living being for being one of my greatest teachers, for coming into my life and teaching me humility and teaching me uh, how to surrender and And how to be strong, and that I was going to bury her because I've learned the lessons, and now I need to move on with my life. And I buried her up on our mountain where we live. And for some people, they may think that sounds kind of silly, but I, I will say that I think that ritual can be very powerful, and that for me, without having a before and after, that day of burying that cancer, I just was in this limbo of of having stage four cancer and being told it'll never be cured, and that and that you know I need to come in for these scans and this. So it's hard to live with that weight, and so for me, I had to have a before and after. And so after I buried the cancer, I've just moved on. And sometimes I slip back into thinking, well, you know, what if I'm not here in three years? What do I need to do for my family, my children? But it's very seldom because now I just live, I just live as if I've buried my cancer uh, and I'm moving on with my life. She may come back. Uh, She may come back. She may not. But psychologically, you have to have some defining moment or you'll make yourself crazy. And I say that because I've had patients tell me this, 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 this especially for that stage four. It's like, I, I'm just in limbo, Doc. I just, I'm in limbo. And I'm like, I get it. I get it.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing uh, your story and, and your powerful voice. Um, and uh, you have moved, moved forward in life. I mean, you have um, this Medicine Lodge Ranch, right, where you're having in-person and online workshops. And, um, you know, I plan to come sometime soon and learn more from you. And I encourage anybody else to as well. Uh, you're just a gift to all of us. And uh, I'm so thankful that you continue to, to teach and to be uh, as engaged as you are as we keep uh, developing this field. So thank you.
1: And, and Santosh, I want to say to you, thank you on behalf of all of us out here, patients and colleagues and practitioners for being such a light in this field for bringing not only your scientific and medical rigor to this field of oncology and integrative oncology, but bringing your humanity, your compassion and your care, because I've actually been to see you with a family member and I was just struck by just what a great doctor you are, but what an amazing human being you are. So, thank you on behalf of all of us. Thank you for doing this podcast. Thank you for seeing patients. Thank you for just who you are. It was my pleasure to be here with you today.
0: Well, that means so much to me. And, uh, you know, I want to thank you for trusting me with uh, somebody from your family that meant a lot to me. Um, and just uh, just thank you for being for being you and for sharing uh, so openly with us today.
1: Thank you for everything, Santosh.
0: Thanks joining.